Hey, what's up? This is LZ, and welcome to episode one of On Serve. Now, she is famous for having one of the greatest comebacks in tennis history. But Chandra Rubin is so much more than just one match. She is a Grand Slam champion, a Harvard graduate, and more impressively, a maker of history. This girl, Chandra Rubin, played fantastic tennis. For the better part of 10 years, John Isner has been the best American male tennis player. But he isn't always treated as such, even in America. I talked to him about what it's like being the giant, being Goliath, in a world that prefers David. John Esner is a Masters 1000 champion for the very first time. I had a chance to talk with both on this episode of On Serve with LZ Granderson. I am here with Chanda Rubin. How have you been post-retirement? <laughs> I've been good. I mean, busy, and I've gotten busier, and it's just sort of happened. I don't know when it started to change, but I've I've been embracing it and and loving it actually. You know, when I've been scrolling through all the things that you've been involved with post career, the one thing that really stuck out to me that I thought it was cool was that you decided to go to Harvard and and pursue economics. What kind of led that on? Um, I was always interested in real estate and investing, commercial real estate. I started investing when I was still playing, formed a company, an LLC, bought, you know, commercial property, but, um, you know, wasn't hands-on every day. Um, and so once I retired, I felt like I needed to do that, to get fully immersed in it. Um, I wanted to improve the direction of the property that I had, and it was a big undertaking. And I felt like I needed that additional sort of knowledge. And I also, it was also, it was always important to me to get my education, um, had the chance, obviously, just to finish high school, didn't have the chance to go to college. So it was a dual kind of, um, you know, dual focus in terms of getting my degree, always feeling like that was so important, and also wanting to get that extra knowledge from the economics and finance part inside of things. And so, yeah, I went back to school, actually spent... Uh, three semesters on campus. It was part of the requirement of getting my degree from Harvard and loved it. I didn't love the cold as much. <laughs> One of the semesters was winter there. Wasn't as fun as that, but I really enjoyed and embraced the whole experience. And it was a lot of hard work, but so worthwhile. You didn't go to like former tennis player university to get a degree. You went to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do it, I figure, you know, try to get one of the best degrees out there that you can get. I mean, if you're going to put the time into it, if you're going to make the commitment. And there were times where I was kicking myself and mad because it was so tough and like 2 and 3 a.m. trying to get papers and trying to get work done. But I'm, I'm so glad that I did. And it was one of the best experiences, uh, certainly, that I've had post-tennis. It's been one at the top of the list. And your mom was an educator, correct? Is she still is, or yes? Okay. And your dad? Yes, she retired. Okay. Yes. And, and your dad was a judge. Is he still a judge? He's still a judge. How difficult was it growing up with someone who's a judge? <laughs> it seems like I mean, it would be hard to get one over on him. <laughs> well, you know, initially he was a lawyer. 
So I don't know if that's worse or not, but he was a lawyer until I was about 16 years old. And then um, he ran for office and, and won, and he's been a judge since then. So uh, I'm going to date myself here, but it's been 20. I got to use my other fingers to count that high, but it's been 25 you know, plus years. And, you know, it's, it's what I knew. I didn't have another dad. That's the dad I had. I grew up with. And so you just, you know, for me, I always appreciated, you know, he was always fair. He was always, you know, very exacting about certain things, his expectations, you know, what he sort of wanted us to always be aware of as, as kids and, you know, trying to excel, trying to do our best. Like there were standards and they were pretty high at times, but I embraced that side of it. And for me, with my personality, I probably push myself as harder, harder. Uh, so it worked. And I'm so appreciative because I got a little bit of both from my parents, you know, my dad in terms of being a disciplinarian and, you know, sort of hard nodes and hard line. But he also has this mischievous side and this funny side. He doesn't often let people see, but I, I see it occasionally. Um, and so that's an offset. And then my mom on the other side of it, you know, into education, we were reading from an early age. I mean, I remember my earliest memories were of having a book in my hands and, you know, just craving that type of knowledge. But she was also, you know, very soft and very empathetic. And, and so I had a little bit of both. So I feel like I was pretty lucky. How did they handle you deciding not to go to university right after high school? I mean, you're talking about two people who obviously did that. Yes. Um, and, and that was always a topic of, of discussion. But I turned pro when I was 15. So, you know, I was a junior going into my junior year, um, just starting my junior year in high school. So it just didn't make sense to wait and then go to college and sort of go that route uh, because of where I was with my game and my growth and my development. And they understood that. And they wanted me to pursue my dreams. They wanted me to maximize, you know, my, my abilities. And, you know, that was sort of, you know, that was the tough part of making the decision. But it felt somewhat obvious at that point because of where I was. You eventually became the third African-American player to reach the top 10, following Zena Garrison and Lori McNeil. You ever think about your place in history? You know, I don't, I mean, I haven't, I didn't, I never thought of it in that way. Um, so there were no rankings when Althea came, came up, I guess. Hmm. I didn't think, I haven't thought of that, that way. Is that shocking to you? <laughs> You know, it's, you know, I feel, I wouldn't say shocking, but it, it definitely kind of gives me a little bit of pause because sometimes I'm, I'm so busy just continuing to, to try to push and continue and try to do things, do more. And I don't really stop to think about those kinds of things very often, but I, I feel fortunate because you know, Zena and Lori, I knew very well and still to this day, I'm good friends with them. And, you know, I felt when I was playing, like there was a bridge. You know, I wouldn't have thought of it in the terms you just put it in, but I always felt the connection. I always felt, um, you know, like I, I was following in the footsteps of others and learning and growing from that and benefiting from that. And that was a big part of, of how I developed and sort of came of age in the sport. So it's not surprising and it doesn't feel shocking. It's a, it's a nice thought, um, but it's certainly 
you know, it's this collective effort. And that's how I always feel. And I hope I can continue and, and begin to sort of help others coming behind me and continue to do that the way that they did for me. You know, obviously, when you're talking about African-American women in tennis, the Williams sisters come up. You've played both of them. Mm-hmm. But since then, you know, Sloane Stevens has become a Grand Slam winner. Uh, Madison Keys has had deep runs into the Grand Slams. Are we past the point now where we need to mark or make a big deal out of a black female player going deep or making big moves in tennis? I don't think we, we are. I think that it's still significant. I think when you look at the numbers, um, when you look at how few players of color there are out there and still how difficult it can be to navigate in a very different environment where there aren't a lot of people that look like you, it's it's still tough. And so, you know, it, it's we're not past that point. I think we still need to celebrate that. We still need to, you know, uh, continue to encourage and, and help others you know, like Sloan and like Madison, who are very different, very different personalities, but have come through, you know, with certain challenges um, that are that are common um, to to people and players of color. So I, I think we have to continue to to celebrate that. We've got to continue to point that out, and we've just got to keep getting new and different perspectives because the sport that we all love, tennis, you know, this sport has still been very homogenous at times. There, it hasn't been a lot of inclusion, and we got to keep. We have to keep pushing that. There's more, and it has improved, but we have to keep telling that story and, and continue to push that narrative. You know, it's so interesting when you think about great athletes who are men and African American in sports. You know, we can name tons and tons and tons, and yet when it comes to tennis, Arthur Ashe still remains the only African American man to win a Grand Slam title. Why do you think that has been such a huge gap there in terms of achievement at that level? Yeah, if I if I had the answers to that, I probably could bottle it and, and uh, <laughs> certainly do a whole lot more good. Um, you know, that's you know that's that's the question. It's probably you know a combination of reasons. You know, we've had uh, since Arthur Ashe, we've had uh, Grand Slam finalists of color. I think uh, you know it's just been it's just been Mal, I believe, yeah, Mal. Um, who's gotten to a, a major final. So you know that's another question um, as well. And it would be interesting to sort of hear his take on it because he and I have talked uh, about different things over the years. So it'd be interesting to hear his specific take on it, especially now with the perspective he has. But I, I just I think it. it <sighs> You know, it can be difficult already as a, a young man sort of growing up as a, a young man of color, growing up in, you know, in your space and your environment in this country. And then you're navigating or trying to navigate a world where you are such a minority and, and you are, you know, again, there aren't many who look like you who've had some of the similar experiences you have or, or just who you can really relate to. And so you end up trying to assimilate a little bit more, mm-hmm. I think, than being sort of your own person. And that can be a difficult thing to sort of navigate while you're growing into a man. You know, so for me, my take as a female, not having anywhere near all the answers to that question, I think that may be part of it, um, along with, you know, just making sure at early ages, you know, players of color have access to all of the same expertise expertise, all of, you know, the, the um, you know, the, the same 
things that players need to make it, you know, the money, the funding, the travel, people to travel with. There's so many challenges already as a tennis player, and I think it gets it becomes greater as a player of color because you don't have the same access. And that's just, you know, been, I think, part of the, the whole story. You think tennis isn't cool enough to want to attract uh, young urban kids? I mean, when you think about basketball, for instance, right? Like you can mention like mm-hmm. a thousand and one different players that just attract a lot of young men and wanted to emulate them. But you look on the tennis side, is tennis cool enough? Is Roger Federer cool enough? Is Rafa Nadal cool enough? Maybe not, you know, and, and certainly those aren't the figures that are, that you see every day sort of as, as cool and uh, as sort of part of, you know, the, you know, a little bit of the hip hop culture, a little bit of, of sort of that flavor that you get every day, you know, kids growing up in, with different sports around them. And tennis just isn't there. I mean, it's nowhere near, um, the same access, the same, um, the same idea when kids think about sports tennis is just not in that space and so that's part of it as well it's a lot easier for a kid to pick up a basketball pick up a football or you know even a baseball in the in the neighborhoods or in the parks tennis is just not going to be that sport it's going to go down the list so you know that contributes to it as well getting those young um, dynamic athletes that want to be into in tennis um, I, I think we don't have that same draw you know when we think about your fantastic career and as i said earlier you did uh at one point was was a top 10 player but you have two matches that kind of stick out the one obviously is the comeback against yana novatna down oh love five love 40 in the third set into french but then the others against monica sellers where you're up five two in the third you go on to lose that one which one sticks out more in your mind when you think about your career the comeback victory or the almost victory against monica sellers I mean, it's hard to pick just one. <laughs> Both of them for different reasons. I will, I will, they will always sort of be there. I certain, I, I definitely think that the match against Yana was a real turning point in my career because it was against a, a top 10 player. I believe at the time she was five in the world. It was at a major. Uh, it was, you know, on center court and it was really kind of a breakthrough for me. My first, uh, I would get to my first Grand Slam quarterfinal after beating her. Uh, so there were a lot of things that make that match very pivotal, uh, along with just the lessons I learned from it in terms of how I would approach my tennis later on, you know, never giving up, continuing to fight, understanding, you know, the space I needed to be in to play my best, not thinking about winning and losing. There were a number of things that came together in that match and that were crucial for me to make those next steps to get to top 10, to, you know, get to you know, a, a major semifinal to, to win doubles, you know, on and on. So that match, I think, is maybe slightly more pivotal. But the match against Monica, I was up 5-2, I think 30-15 in the third. And, you know, I remember that because it was a semifinal of a Grand Slam, mm-hmm. you know, making it to a final was something I never did. And that was a huge moment. And, you know, so I think about what could have been, what if, you know, I win that match. I'm one match away from potentially being a Grand Slam, you know, champion. And, you know, with who was on the other side, I mean, who knows? So, of course, for those reasons, the one against Monica hurts more. But, 
you know, I can't, I can't complain too much. I didn't have, I think, a lot of opportunities, as many as I would have liked. Um, that was one of them. Um, I didn't get it, but I did get a lot of other things from that tournament and that, that event that year. And, you know, that's kind of how I look at that one. So I think for different reasons, they both stand out. But the one against Yana was definitely more pivotal with where I was in my in my career. How much of that victory had to do with your will and how much of that had to do with her choking? I think a lot of it, a bit of both, but I think a good bit of it had to do with her choking. Um, I mean, I have to honestly say that. I mean, who comes back? I mean, love five, love 40. 40 I mean, love. You yeah. should be booking your flight home. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was booking it in my mind. I was packing my bags in my mind. I remember that moment out there on, on, you know, Chatrier. Uh, so yeah, I think a good bit had to do with her, you know, sort of folding in that moment. And I remember when she started missing and I recognized it and it was like a trigger, like, Oh my gosh, she's tight. Like she just started missing slices in the net. And so then that kind of tapped into my will and, and, you know, sort of me and what was within me in terms of just hanging in there and fighting. Because you still don't think you're going to win that match. I still didn't. I, I mean, I, I would tell you honestly, at no point did I think I was still going to win that match until I maybe got to closer to five all. <laughs> and then I started maybe <laughs> thinking about it a little bit. But until then, it was just stay out here as long as possible, you know, one more point. But you as a player i did recognize i saw it on the other side of the net and it did factor into making my will stronger speaking of wills there's very few players on tour with a stronger will than serena williams but she hasn't been able to lift a trophy since coming back from pregnancy are we done seeing serena as a champion in terms of winning events she'll always be a champion but in terms of actually winning these events are those days behind her now I think you would count Serena out at your own peril. I, I don't think we can ever say that until she decides to hang up her rackets, until she decides she's ready to move on to the completely to the next phases of, of her life because she's just that good. She's just that dominant. And, you know, still when she enters an event with hardly no matches, you know, having had to retire from, you know, the majority of her events this year, um, we still look at her as one of the favorites when she enters an event and it's because, you know, she has that ability. So I don't think we can say that until she's ready, you know, to hang it up. There's going to be more challenges. You know, it's tougher with where she is at this phase of her life. She has other priorities, you know, the physical coming back from pregnancy and childbirth is maybe not as easy as she may be thought. Um, certainly moms who, you know, who have, gone through that who still try to play sports after the fact you know they realize you know depending on where they are uh with their with their bodies that there's different challenges to that and so i think she's just entering a new phase and she's got to approach her career a little differently she's got to be a little bit smarter serena does and hopefully she can stay healthy because that's going to be the main question now that's what's coming into play and that i think is the only thing that's going to stop her is if she can't get and stay fully healthy. Thanks to Chandra Rubin. We're going to take a quick time out. John Isner is ahead on this episode of On Serve with LZ Granderson.
John Isner has had a very successful career up to this point, but last year he suffered some unexpected struggles. I started our conversation by asking, how is he dealing with them? It was, it, was a, it was a bit of a tough time, of course. I mean, everyone loses matches, but then when you lose sort of three, four matches in a row, I think just inevitably some a little bit of doubt starts starts to creep up, and especially when all those matches were really close and I was playing these matches last year at the beginning of the year. And in, in the nitty-gritty moments, I just wasn't coming through at all, and I just kept on losing. So it was, it was very, very tough, and I never started a season – in my whole career at that that poorly but really all it was and I knew and I knew this as well it was just a mental adjustment I mean it wasn't that I was playing badly I just wasn't coming through in the clutch because inevitably as everyone knows I play a lot of close matches so it can very easily happen if I'm not you know as mentally sharp as I need to be that I, I can start losing these close matches so I just changed a few things mentally and hashed a lot of things out with my coach uh, I think being vulnerable uh, with him and and you know telling him what was holding me back and not not just internalizing all of that was very very helpful and I was able to, as you said, uh, turn it around in Miami last year. So you know, obviously, I have to ask you now: How much of anything can you share with the listeners in terms of what you felt was holding you back last year? Yeah, it just I just wasn't really uh, going for my shot. In, in the big moment, for me, that's of course not the right way to play. I was, I was just—it's it, the wrong way to play for absolutely anyone. But for me, it just—it's just everything is so exaggerated. And if I'm, you know, if I'm eight feet behind the baseline, hoping that my opponents miss, I'm not going to win. I'm just simply not. And that's—that's that's what I was sort of banking on last year at, at the beginning of the year, and it wasn't working out at all. What happened? I, like, just had to, I just had to change things. I had to just tell myself, just go for it. And if I miss it, so be it. At least I, at least I uh, played played that point the uh, right way. Speaking of maturity, you know, you as a person have grown a lot while on tour. You've gotten married. You're now a father. How is life different for you now that those two phases of adulthood has hit you? Yeah, life has is changed so much. Uh, you know, for the better for me. My wife and I got engaged in June of 2017, and we got married in December of 2017, and we had a kid in September of uh, 2018. So we certainly moved fast, but we, you know, we we always knew that we were going to get married, but it just the timing of it just wasn't quite right, and so the timing of it, you know, has been perfect. Um, we're at the great stage stage in both of our lives, and we've been so blessed and so fortunate to welcome a baby girl into this world. So um, it changed things so much for the better. It, it puts a lot of perspective on things, um, just seeing that whole process, you know, seeing my wife's belly get bigger as our baby is growing and, you know, being there with my wife as she was giving birth it was truly remarkable and beautiful and it's it's a it definitely is, is a miracle as well and as i said uh, both of us are very very lucky and i'm very very lucky to have a great family and to play a sport for a living so it does put a very good uh, perspective on things weirdest thing that happened to your wife while she was pregnant 
she well i think it is any i was hearing that that uh women when they're pregnant a lot of food just really really turned them off and she actually quite likes mushrooms but when she was pregnant the even the thought of a mushroom just made her want to vomit so and i really enjoy mushrooms as well so there was about five months there where I did not have any mushrooms and I like to have those on every single steak that I eat. So, um, I had to uh, take those out of my diet just for her because she was, she was repulsed by them. You couldn't man up and just be like, woman, this is my food. Yeah, I know, but like the smell, it would really get to her. You know, she, she's the one doing all the work here about, about to bring this uh, baby into the world. So, um, I did not say that. <laughs> you're, you're smarter than me. Uh, yeah, exactly. Happy, <laughs> happy wife, happy wife. There you go. So you talked about having the family, having your little daughter. How much time do you spend with them on the road? Yeah, uh, actually, a fair bit of time. So when she was born, she obviously couldn't travel. So she was born on September fifteenth, and I made. I did not go to Asia, which was. Um, you know, the tournaments right after she was born. I just wasn't going to, wasn't going to do that, but I eventually had to continue on my season in Europe. So I played three weeks of tournaments in Europe without my family. And that was very, very tough because I just wanted to be with my wife and my baby. Then I was fortunate enough to make that, the final eight tournament in London and they both came. Now, how many of your friends on tour have kids? Like, are you in federal ship swapping secrets? <laughs> well, He's got a lot more uh, tips uh, that he can hand out than I do. He's got four kids, two sets of twins. Pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, I think of the American guys. I'm uh, the only one that has um, a kid right now and has a kid that occasionally travels. Um, there's some, there's some, of course, some foreign guys that I'm very good friends with that uh, that that like to travel with their family, but. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's a great thing. Uh, for me, I want them to come to as many tournaments as possible because it really really puts me at home. There are some things you have to adjust to, is you know the hotel room situation. I have to make sure I have two rooms. I think the best way to do it is to have like a suite with like a little den, or have a room with you know, or have have an adjoining room because you know at five six months old, you're not exactly sleeping through the night and. For me, being a professional athlete and being a very, very big one at that, I need as much sleep as I possibly can get. Are you going to play that card on your wife for how long? Oh, baby, I would get up, but you know, I'm a professional well, athlete. You know, I can't. Card. You know, I don't think it's a card. I don't think it's a card that I'm actually playing. I think it's, it's legit, and, and she knows. That, and she knows that. So, but look, it hasn't been an issue when they when they have been on the road. So we've we've been able to uh, figure it all out. And I actually quite like the the white noise machine that our daughter sleeps with that we can hear, of course, because it's, it's right by, by her crib. So we travel with that as well, and it uh, puts me in a good sleep. So when it's time to pick her up from middle school, you're like, baby, you know I will pick her up, but you know I was a professional athlete. I, I can't get up right now. <laughs> when I'm home, I, I, I do it as much as I can. I try to help my <laughs> wife out. I mean, she's doing the lion's share of everything, just as all great mothers do out there. Um, but when I'm home, I try to help her out as much as I possibly can. I, the greatest thing in the world for me is, you know, is getting up at, you know, our, our girl usually, she probably, she's generally up about 6.30 in the morning, like up for good, is going in there and, um, 
you know, opening up the curtains and see her smile when, when, when the sun shines in the room. That's, that's, that, that's the best part of my day, no doubt. Awesome. So, uh, you guys moved to Texas not too long ago. Your wife is from Dallas, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So how's Texas treating you? You should fit in. Everything is bigger there. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, uh, I actually really enjoy Texas. I think, um, the people of Dallas are so incredibly nice. Uh, I've, of course, you know, when we were just dating long distance, I was spending quite a bit of time in Texas, but no, nothing. And I was always, you know, traveling to Texas and going back to Florida, back and forth, back and forth. And, and she was doing the same. But now that we've settled in Texas, we really, really enjoy it. I think one of the things I might, I may have been a bit apprehensive about was, you know, my training schedule and my, and my regiment in Texas, because I'm a very ritual person. I like to, when things get sort of out of sync and out of whack for me, it, it throws me off big time. But I've been able to settle into a fantastic uh, rhythm in Dallas as far as practicing. Where I practice at mostly is at SMU University, and they have one of the nicest chin facilities I've ever seen, and that's very, very, very close to my house. And um, the strength coach I work with is very close to my house. So it's all right there, and it's all been um, – it's been a, you know, it's been different. It's been an adjustment, but it's been a great adjustment. I mean, we're uh, we're absolutely loving our time in Dallas. You know, as we talked earlier, you've been the top ranked American man for for a number of seasons now, but unfortunately, you aren't necessarily embraced or loved the way the other top ranked American men have been in, in mm-hmm. the past. How much does that mm-hmm. bother you? Oh no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, you know, look, it, it also. I mean, I, I know that American men's tennis, you know, we actually are, um, you know, on the up right now as a whole. We have a lot of players in the top 100. But, look, in the last eight, nine years, you know, it hasn't exactly been the, the glory days of the 80s and 90s and, and the early two, 2000s for, uh, for, for American tennis fans. And, you know, there's a lot of um, on tour right now. There's a lot of incredible personalities and athletes and players as well. You know, of course, led by the people that have been on, been at the top of the rankings for so long. So there's a huge European influence um, in men's tennis right now that I think even a lot of American fans uh, are, are attracted to. And you know, I do have a lot of fans, and there may be some people that out there who um, aren't quite as as uh, much of a fan as as others. But that's okay. Is it? Because you know, personally, I, 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 get, I get personally, I get ticked off, John. I get ticked off being at your matches in America and noticing the crowd is fifty fifty, if not sixty forty, for the other guy. No, it's all look. It's all good. I mean, I have, but I think in general, it's, it's not like that. I did play. Um, I kind of had a sort of infamous match against Montfiese at the U.S. Open, but I mm-hmm. think that was more of a product of the fans maybe just wanting to see more tennis because I was up two sets to love. And as anyone knows, Monfils is one of the most electrifying uh, players on tour. And he was able to win the third set, and it was a night match. It was the U.S. Open. So, so things sort of uh, – the crowd started uh, cheering for him a bit. And and I was initially uh, disappointed at that and pretty uh, bummed out about that. But now that I think back on it, I wish I hadn't had not have, had not have said that. Look, these people, you know – you know they're the ones paying the tickets to watch us play. They can they can cheer for uh, for for whoever they want to. Who are you cheering for now besides yourself? You talked about a lot of American guys are now in the top 100. Who do you really have your eyes on? 
Well, I always cheer for Federer. <laughs> so I don't think I'm a That's low hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very low hanging fruit. Uh, look, the young guys, the American guys coming up, I, I do cheer for everyone. Look, we are competitors, of course, but I never um, try to ever begrudge anyone else's success. We're all friends on tour. Um, so this is guys that I've been playing with for a long time. Guy like Sam Query, we've been playing together for forever now. And Stevie Johnson and Jack Sock, always rooting for them. But we have, a, you know, like American men's tennis right now is in a very good spot. There's a bunch of um, young 20-year-old players coming up. Francis TFO is one that he may have, you know, introduced himself to a lot of fans this year at, at the Australian Open. He's got loads of talent. Uh, the kid that beat me last week, Riley Opelka, and the one that saved all the match points against me, he's a very good player as well. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of players after them. There's Taylor Fritz on top of that. So I have my eyes on on all these young guys to see how they progress. I think uh, even more importantly than that, I think I'm interested to see how they handle success. Because it's sort of easy to, you know, as we talked about earlier, to maybe fly under the radar when there's not much pressure on you. But once their ranking starts to get up, see how they handle that. See if they can put together two or three consecutive good years in a row. Um, That's something that I've been able to do for a very long time. I've been in the top 20 in the world nine years consecutively now, and I'm going for 10 uh, this year. So I think seeing how they handle success, because they're going to have a lot of it um, here this year and the year after that is going to be very important. It's something that I'm I'm looking forward to uh, watching. You're 6'10", 6'11", right? Yeah, and you're in Dallas, which has, thanks to the Porzingis trade, became the yep. tall white guy basketball player capital of the world now. It is. Do you regret I'm not, not I'm playing not, basketball? I'm not foreign. I'm not foreign, though. You're not foreign. That is true. <laughs> do you yeah. re- do you regret maybe not sticking with basketball instead of tennis? I, uh, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, the answer is no. The answer is no. But I actually have always been curious because I was, I was a good basketball player and growing up and and just as I you know just as I've done in tennis I've always been a late bloomer I you know it took me forever to grow into my body it would have been interesting to, to see if I stuck with basketball how far I, I could have gone I do just think with my height alone I think I could have uh, played some college basketball uh, possibly but ultimately I do think I, I, I made the right choice I've had a lot of success playing tennis and I've enjoyed myself so much playing tennis one thing I do miss is playing on a team every single day. In tennis, we don't get to play on a team that often. And I've always considered myself a, a uh, team player. But I do miss that aspect of, of team sports. But tennis has uh, brought so much into my life and allowed me to meet so many incredible people, just like you, LZ. And, um, you know. Flattery will get you tennis, everywhere. Start, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if it wasn't for tennis, I wouldn't, um, wouldn't be here right now. But I uh, – would have been interesting to see what I what would have happened had I had I stuck with basketball. How many more seasons do you envision for yourself? We ask Federer this question. We ask all the great ones like Tom Brady once they get to a certain stage yeah. age wise. You're a great tennis yeah, player, but you know, mm-hmm. no, it's a good question. It's a good question. I know, as you said, Brady, you know, the greatest, and Federer, the greatest. They get asked that all the time. I'm nowhere in the same uh, stratosphere as those guys. But look, I'd like to play as long as I possibly can, as long as I can still do it at a high level. 
Um, and that's and I'm talking about in you know in the singles game. I, I need a date, so, John. Uh, that's that's too flowery. I need you to give me a solid date so I can be there. Yeah, look, if I I'd like to play another three years. I mean, I will really focus hard for for another three years. And if in three years I still find myself physically fit and healthy, and you know my rankings high, and I'm competing, and I'm and I'm still enjoying myself I'll probably keep it going after that but I think you know I'm definitely on the latter stages of, of my professional career right now I know that but I do think I can play um, very well and very competitively for, for another three years Special thanks to Chandler Rubin and John Isner for great conversations and to Chris Morales Dan Zampillo and Pete Genesini for helping to put together this podcast Now, if you like this show, please rate and review it. And make sure you listen to episode two when I talk to young American players Taylor Fritz and Riley Opeka. On Serve with LZ Granderson is an ESPN audio production.